0: Music and murder contains violence, profanity, and graphic material that may not be suitable for children or people with weak stomachs. Parental advisory is definitely recommended.
1: Ooh, hello all you cool cats and kittens, this is your host the totally hip and groovy Michael D. Keeney, and the D is for dig, y'all dig that shit yo? Nice. This is episode 6 of the totally cool and totally chill vibe and show Music and Murder. Where we talk and we groove about murders and music. On this episode we're going to discuss the murder's mind and music of serial killer Danny Harold Rolling, aka the Gainesville Ripper. Now this crazy cat not only killed, robbed, and raped many people, both post and pre-mortem, but he also sang in the courtroom during his hearings and right before he was executed. So this is guaranteed to be one hell of an episode and likely the most suitable story ever for a show called Music and Murder. Now sit back, relax, and let me tell you a story about the infamous Danny Rowling. Or if you prefer, The Gainesville Ripper If you're familiar with serial killers And part of the true crime subculture You've likely heard of Daniel Harold Rowling But I promise you We will discuss some things that you do not know About this extremely complex and twisted individual After all, Rowling's Rampage's Murders were the inspiration for the 1996 hit slasher film Scream. Remember that, Sidney. Daniel Harold Rowling intrigues me, and I'm sure as we discuss him in great detail, he will likely intrigue you as well. You will likely hate him for obvious reasons, but he may intrigue you. At least if you're into psychology. Even a teeny tiny itsy bitsy bit. For the remainder of this story, I will refer to Daniel Harold Rowling as simply Danny. Danny was born in Shreveport, Louisiana on May 26th, 1954. His mother was just 19 years old when she had Danny, and her name was Claudia, and I've always been fond of that name. I've never known a Claudia. Hmm, his father James was a police officer and a military guy who suffered from PTSD. Danny's childhood was likely exactly as you would expect it was, being that he was, after all, a serial killer. His dad was an alcoholic, which at this point, I don't even know why I have to say that anymore. I don't think I've ever done a single episode on this show without having to talk about the killer's alcoholic father. I mean, good old alcohol. We gotta love it. Because after all, Jesus turned water into wine. Even though it ruins and destroys more lives than anything else that's ever been invented. But, is still looked at as a great homo sapien pastime, and is not only accepted in most social circles, but also a mandatory part of them as well. Yeah, I know, I do drink, so I shouldn't be talking shit on alcohol. But I'm just random because I'm drunk. <laughs> or am I just stoned? Maybe both, who knows. Good thing that I've never raised any kids, just cats. And if you count birds and lizards, which I do, I guess they did turn out to be serial killers as well, so... hmm. We're getting way off track Breathe, back to reality Now, Danny's father was very abusive To his entire family He was especially abusive after Danny's younger brother Kevin was born He also wasn't a very affectionate father No warm Olaf hugs Or I love yous or shit like that Just your basic manly-man, police-like drunken dad that always smelled of scotch and cigars. Yum. The smell of love and nurturing. (sighs) Breathe it in. Danny's mother left his father on multiple occasions, only to return every single time. Danny was only four years old when this whole dysfunctional wheel of leaving and returning began. In my opinion, this was something that made Danny a bit misogynistic. Which, for those of you that aren't familiar with this term, it means having or showing hatred and distrust of women. I believe that this was deeply rooted in Danny because it was his mother that always left. And bet your ass that when she did, his father James brainwashed Danny into thinking that his mom was an evil, Demon out-fucking every man on the planet while James was there working hard and providing for him. Some of you mothers kind of know this cycle. In third grade, Danny was held back and loosely diagnosed with inferiority complex and aggressive behavior. He also had poor impulse control. So, he acted out a lot. Poor impulse control is a very big part of psychopathy. The school's administration told Danny's parents that he definitely needed counseling. But just like almost always, he didn't receive it. I can tell you right off the top of my head, literally a hundred serial killers' names that had their alcoholic dads told... That their future serial killer child needed counseling, and like almost always, they brushed it off and drove to the local bar and forgot all about it within minutes. If it even took that long. I could picture his dad with a bubble over his head with a bottle of Jack in it while he was being told that his son needed counseling. Kind of like Homer Simpson with donuts. Mmm, donuts. Now, around this time, Danny's mother, Claudia, experienced a complete nervous breakdown, likely from moving in and out of their house so much because of the abuse that she was handed down by her husband and Danny's father, James. And it was right around this time that Danny's father, James, would pretty much seal the deal for making sure that his son would never, ever be normal or mentally stable for the rest of his life. You see, James bought Danny a puppy about a year earlier, and throughout the entire year, James beat and tortured this puppy whenever Danny or the puppy would upset him, which was quite a bit. And finally, one day, James beat the puppy, so badly that it finally died in Danny's arms. Danny absolutely loved this dog. It was his best friend, and pretty much the only living thing that gave him affection. And I know what you're thinking, doesn't most serial killers abuse animals? And the answer is most definitely yes. But like I said before, Danny intrigues me. He's not a psychopath, and he was capable of love, and he absolutely loved this dog that died in his arms, thanks to his dear old dad. In my opinion, this incident not only made Danny manifest a deep hatred for his father, but it also likely made him disconnect from reality in general. And in a way, he likely lost all hope In mankind. Now, I know this is jumping a bit in time for our story, but I think it's relevant to say here and now in this story, Danny had neighbors and family members, including his own mother, testify at his murder trials that his father, James, not only neglected him, but also neglected to show him any affection whatsoever. And he also beat Danny on several occasions. And he likely would have beat him to death, like he did his dog, had he not been a cop who definitely realized that he would have lost his job and gone to prison. And of course, Danny wasn't worth all that in James's eyes. Danny wasn't worth anything to James. His own biological, flesh-and-blood son. Oh, and by the way... When Claudia was pregnant with Danny, James, of course, beat the shit out of her for getting pregnant. Here's a little clip of Danny's mother, Claudia, testifying at Danny's murder trial of what happened when his father, James, found out that he had a beer with one of the neighbors when Danny was just a teenager.
2: Rowling's mother, ill with cancer, testified on videotape to her husband's extremes. Jurors listened as she described when an underage Danny drank a beer offered by a neighbor.
3: It was shoving and pushing and that kind of thing, and he finally got a really good grip on Danny. And he pulled him out, and he pulled him all the way to the kitchen, and he threw him down in a kitchen chair, pretty much like the one you're sitting in, and he handcuffed him to it. And he called the police. What happened to him? They put him in juvenile
4: hall. How long did he stay there?
3: About three weeks, I guess, two or three weeks, something like
1: that. Did you ever go see
3: him?
0: James wouldn't let me. From, From Rowling's cousin, who grew up with Danny. Did you ever see Mr. Rowling ever hug Danny Rowling any time in your life? Never. Did you
5: ever hear him say a word of encouragement to Danny any time in your life? Never. Not ever. Ever hear him say he was prodigal any time in your life? Never. Never Ever hear him say I love him anytime soon? No.
0: Nope. I know the question.
2: And from a next door neighbor who witnessed a fight between father and son. He was beating him with such a force that I called the mother at, at, at work on her job, and I told her to come home because I was afraid the man was going to kill him. <laughs>
4: Well, I was dreaming in the courtyard, lost in thought. I raised my eyes and I saw them all standing there. Well, I don't know if they were scared of me or not. All I know is they were scared. A couple of them pointed and said, that's him. Well, that right there was all the evidence. They all circled round and closed me in. I've been closed in somewhere ever since. I'm one of the ones who know not what they do. Things don't work too well inside my head. But if what those people say is really true, Lord, help me now, I might as well be dead. But he was in a hurry Between you and me He seemed kinda high When I finally stood Before the judge and jury They wouldn't even look me In the eye My mother said They'll never set you free She turned her face away As if to hide I don't know if Mama cried for me All I know is Mama cried And the preacher talked of all eternity and the peace I'd find waiting on the other side. Well, I don't know if Jesus died for me. All I know is Jesus died. they shut the door and they took the key. They left me in this dark old cell to rot. There's a bloody angel sits in here with me. And I can't tell if it's a dream or not. I can't tell if it's a dream or not.
0: me, but I know you, and I want to play a game, would you like to play a game, I want you to go onto your phone, are you looking at your phone, good, I want you to log to Instagram, I want you to search for music underscore murder underscore podcast, and I want you to follow it. You will receive a follow back. Also, if you'd like to get your music on the show, or would like to be a guest, or just like to discuss the show in general, please email me at murdercast at mail.com. Murdercast at mail.com. This is an important game. You should play it. That is all for now.
1: Welcome back. We are discussing the case of serial killer and Gainesville ripper Danny Harold Rowling, which I'm referring to as Simply Danny. By the way, the song that I played was titled Dark Boogie No. 7, by a great band called Kane Welch, Kaplan. So we left off where Danny got his ass beat, handcuffed to a chair, and sent to Juvenile Hall for two weeks, all by his own piece-of-shit alcoholic father, who likes to beat puppies to death until they die in his son's arms. Around the same time that Danny goes to Juvenile Hall for two weeks, which was in his early teenage years, he also starts to peer into windows, a little bit of voyeurism. This type of shady behavior is never, ever, under any circumstances, a good sign. Teen voyeurism, or just voyeurism in general, is a precursor to many possible bad things, and paraphilias, and just all around being a fucking weirdo. If you have children that are partaking in this type of behavior, monitor them closely and get them to a psychiatrist as soon as possible. Talk openly about it and make sure not to say negative things, just concerning things. And make sure they know that it's wrong. And also make sure that they know why it's wrong. I think that's the most important thing with voyeurism. Danny's father, James, actually catches Danny peering into a window when he's about 14. And of course, he beats the shit out of him. It's kind of his M.O. This is also around the time that Danny started to attempt suicide, and he attempted suicide for the first time. It's kind of a coincidence because 14 was where I myself started exploring suicide options. Mainly because my mother married a super giant, enormous piece of shit that my 14 year old ass couldn't get away from. But this episode isn't about me, so back to Danny. Altogether, Danny tried slitting his wrist first, and then taking a large amount of unknown pills, which just made him vomit. And throughout life, it seems as though he tried multiple things to kill himself. He does, in a way, finally kill himself, but he does that through the justice system. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves with that. Just kind of keep that in mind. Now, it's also during his early teenage years that Danny begins having awful hell-like dreams continuously. He was beat and tortured throughout these dreams regularly, and he began to talk about a demon inside of him. Danny called this demon Gemini. Now, this is before the Slayer song Gemini was released and before the demon Gemini in the horror movie The Exorcist 3 was released. So I'm wondering if Danny's demon had anything to do with either one of those being manifested. Not Danny taking them from the movies and the song, but the other way around. Because Slayer obviously knew about the Gainesville Ripper, and whoever wrote any horror movies had to know about the Gainesville Ripper as well, being there was a major movie made about the Gainesville Ripper on top of that. Now, the strangest thing about Danny calling his demon Gemini is that Danny was actually born on May 26th, which literally made him a Gemini. Hmm. When Danny was 18, he wanted to get away from his father, James. And just the whole shit show of a family life that he had, so badly, that he enlisted into the United States Navy. Which I'm definitely not insinuating that one has to hate their family life to enlist in the military. I have the most, deepest, and utmost respect for all of our military. So much so that it's not even funny. I'm just stating that this was Danny's only way out as he saw it. Now, what's strange is that the Navy wouldn't accept him. And it was rumored that he likely had drugs in his system when he tried to enlist into the Navy. Which is really crazy because one of my really good friends tried to enlist with drugs in his system. And he was thrown into the brig for many days and then sent home. So I'm not sure if that happened to Danny or not. It couldn't have been because of Danny's intelligence, because Danny had an IQ of 120, right around 120. And if you remember from episode 5, 120 is in the top 30 percentile for IQs. So he was literally more intelligent than about 70% of the population. Which, well, these days here in August 2021, doesn't mean a whole lot, because people aren't all that intelligent anymore, maybe me included, who knows. It seems as though many people that I meet these days probably can't even spell IQ, much less know what the hell it means. But these days you can stay alive and get free rent, food, and money just for being stupid. But back then, if you were stupid, you really just didn't survive for the most part, so you kind of had to be smart. One of my favorite quotes from John Wayne is, life is hard, and it's harder if you're stupid. Now, the most interesting thing about all of this military stuff is after the Navy told Danny to go fuck himself, he tried to enlist into the Air Force. And guess what happened? Well, they said, hey, we know you're probably on drugs and you're in no shape to be working on a military ship, but come and join us in fly planes and other aircraft. It's all good. I have no answers to why Danny was turned down by the Navy and welcomed into the Air Force. But I'm sure it's nothing that the Air Force would ever throw onto one of their commercials or advertising campaigns. The United States Air Force can be proud of the fact that they did kick Danny's ass out for drug possession and being disobedient after just two years. Danny was really drinking a lot of tequila and rum, and he loved smoking grass. And I can't call it grass because in 1971, compared to what we have now, 50 years later, it basically was just actual grass that they smoked back then. Danny also loved snorting and smoking cocaine and taking a lot of LSD, aka acid. Supposedly, Danny has dropped acid more than 100 times, which is quite a lot of times if you actually know how LSD works. Now, just a year after Danny got booted from the Air Force, with what I'd like to add was somehow, some way, an honorable discharge. He then married his first and only wife. She had a very, very interesting name. Her name was Omather. Her last name was Halko. She later, after divorcing Danny, became Omather Loomis. They met when they were both 19 at a Pentecostal church in Danny's hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana. Danny actually stayed married to Amather for over two years. They got married after Amather ended up pregnant with their daughter Kylie Danielle. Amather later testified against Danny at his trial, stating that Danny and his father had a perfect relationship, and that Danny, his family, his neighbors, and his mother were all full of shit via their testifying that his father James did all of the abusive things that Danny and everybody else alleged that he did. Now, jumping just a bit forward, and we will come back to chronological order in just a sec, but just really fast, Danny, like Ted Bundy and many other serial killers, had a type, which means he killed women that all looked very similar, similar hairstyle and color, facial features, weight and eye color. Danny's type was petite females with brown hair and brown eyes, kind of like Ted Bundy's as well. Now, the reason why I'm throwing this out there right now really fast is because a Mather, Danny's wife, was, you guessed it, petite, with brown hair and brown eyes. So maybe their breakup after just two years was a little less than amicable. And Danny was basically just killing her over and over again. Hmm. Also, Danny stated in his confession, at least one of his confessions, that his very first rape ever occurred the night after Amather, I have trouble saying her name sometimes, the night after Amather had served Danny with divorce papers. Allegedly, their marriage ended because Amather was unfaithful to Danny. Imagine that. Now, Danny already suffered from a severe fear of abandonment because of his mother leaving on a regular basis from the time he was just four. And by the way, his mother also had brown hair and brown eyes. Hmm. And we're definitely going to touch a lot more on that in a bit, especially when we discuss one victim in particular, who to this day had to endure the suffering, torture, and mutilation that led up to one of the most morbid and disturbing crime scenes in American history. You will want to hear about this, because through connections and very hard to obtain police reports, I was able to get graphic information that you're not going to get from Google, YouTube, or Wicked Fuckinpedia. But before we get to that, here is my good friend Chris Elkins singing his new song, Pot to Piss in. And Chris is Amber Fry's ex-boyfriend. And yes, I mean the Amber Fry that we all know and love, who is also a good friend of mine. Chris Elkins will be on episode 7 doing the discussion with me. And we will not be talking shit on amber fry so if you're gonna tune in for that don't worry about that we may mention her a bit he did date her for a long time but she's a friend of mine and a very good person again here's the big elk with a pot to piss in
6: Sometimes it feels like my face is getting kicked in. I ain't got a pot to piss in. Got a girl. Down the tub, shit's getting crazy. I know you're scared cause the future is hazy. Keep your chin up, find something to believe in. Someday you'll have a to miss in. My friends and my family ain't worried about invisible enemies, they are my heart and what I believe in. Because who cares about it? We got so much to believe in, we ain't got.
1: Well hello there, this discussion is about Danny Harold Rowling, who I'm now referring to as simply Danny. So far we've discussed Danny's typical serial killer childhood, his graduation into voyeurism, suicide attempts, and a self-proclaimed demon inside of him named after his zodiac sign, which was Gemini. So. If you ever walked up to Danny in a bar and asked him the cliché question, what's your sign, he'd likely say it's a demon from hell living inside of me. We also discussed Danny's wife, his mother, and his type, or rather the type of female victims that Danny sought out while he was an active serial killer. So now we move on to the gruesome stuff. Danny's crimes, which were all robberies and murders and rapes, and sometimes all three at once. I guess you could say that Danny was a criminal that pulled off a few hat tricks in his day. In 1979, Danny began manifesting his criminal destiny. You see, it didn't start with murder, it usually doesn't with serial killers, unless they have good jobs and money in the bank. Usually if a serial killer doesn't have a set career, or at the least a comfortable job, it almost always begins with robbery and or burglary. This behavior slowly turns into something that they get sexual gratification from. And they begin to play and replay these scenarios in their head while masturbating. The acts over the money and property that was the initial main purpose become more important. In other words, the committing of the robberies and burglaries become more satisfying than actually making off with money. And then, with Danny... The rapes occur, because just stealing or robbing no longer satisfies his deviant and reckless behavior. He has to add to that. It's not enough to just take people's property. So back to 1979, and no, not the Smashing Pumpkins song, the actual year 1979, when Danny began robbing places. He really seemed to enjoy robbing Win dixies Especially when Dixie's in the South, particularly Alabama and Georgia, which is where Luke Bryan is from. And I know many of my listeners are not pop country fans, but this new docuseries on Netflix is actually pretty good. It's not about his music as much as it's about his life and being a human being. And honestly, Luke Bryan's a pretty good human being, from what I could see. So in 1979, Danny gets caught robbing a Winn-Dixie in Georgia. And he confesses to robbing multiple grocery stores throughout Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana. And he confesses because I honestly feel that he felt bad about it. Like I said before, Danny was not a psychopath. He was an unstable person that had a horrific childhood that fucked him up very, very bad, but I don't really think that he was born evil, and I don't think that he suffered from psychopathy. I mean, he was just five years old when his mother Claudia first began dabbling in what would turn out to be a lifelong romantic affair with suicide. When Danny was only five, his mother tried shooting herself in the head, but the bullet just grazed her head And then, when Danny was 11, she locked herself in the bathroom and tried slitting her wrist, but before she could actually cut herself bad enough to succeed, Danny's father, James, broke down the door and stopped her just in time. Danny was at the house during both of those incidents. Danny also had a cousin that came in the town to visit on occasion, and while he was in town, he would molest Danny when he was only 10 years old. So, yeah, it's hard to judge people whenever they've went through things like this. Now, I know that we already went over his childhood, and I'm backtracking, but I want you to be aware of how Danny grew up before we get into the things that Danny actually did and the graphic details, because I want you to be able to somehow make some rational sense of what he did and why he did it. In the forensic psychology or profiling field the terms nature and nurture are used are rather overused all the time i think if one was to pick a side they definitely have to pick nurture on this case and only on this case i'm not saying that either one is better in fact on this particular case i would say it's pretty much 50 50 i would have to use a, a term that I coined called "narcher," which is nature and nurture. Narcher. So I think half of what happened with Danny was nature and half was nurture because he was always very fucked up in his head biologically, but we'll also get into that soon. So in 1979, Danny was arrested for robbing multiple grocery stores in multiple southern states. Because within 20 minutes, he cracked and confessed to every robbery that he ever did. And there was a lot. But again, he did confess, which is a strong sign of remorse and regret. Now, for all of these armed robberies, Danny was showing leniency. Likely because of his confession, and he rolled off into the sunset with just two concurrent six-year sentences. Which means he only had to do six years total, because remember, concurrently means that you're doing these sentences at the same time. Had he gotten two six-year sentences that ran consecutive, he would have done 12 years. We do get that, right? Especially if you're a criminal, you should kind of know the difference. Now, after three months, Danny is put in a prison forestry crew, you know, the prisoners that get to go do the fire camps and stuff. He tried to escape, but after a few warning shots were fired right by his feet, he decided that he better just serve his time and not get shot. He did two years in Georgia and four years in Alabama, which I call Bama, because I'm a huge Yellow Wolf fan, and Yellow Wolf calls it Bama, so. When when he gets out, Danny grabs a gun And goes right back to doing what he does best, which is pull the gun out and demand free money. But only this time, Danny chooses to rob a Kroger's. Now Danny makes his getaway with $290 in stolen loot. And then he steals a car, which he learned how to steal cars in prison. Or what I like to call career criminal school. And then he gets arrested literally the very next day in the stolen car with, I think it was like $270, so he got to like buy some beer and a couple things. And needless to say, even though Danny had a good IQ, he wasn't a criminal mastermind, right? He didn't get away with very many things. So this time Danny gets sentenced to just four years for this robbery and the the car theft. But this time, he also decided that he just didn't want to do the time for real. Now, Danny went into prison on March 20th. He missed 420 by one month. In 1986, after once again pleading guilty, because guilty pleading was kind of his thing. He was good at it. And then, well, he just walked away from the prison on April 15th. Just not even a month later. And I cannot find out anything except for that he walked out of the prison. Apparently, this prison let the inmates walk out if they decided to. I I don't know, because I don't see anything about him having this crazy breakout. Once he walked away from the prison, he swam up the Snake River in Jackson, Mississippi, before making his way back home to Louisiana. Not even one month after he was sentenced. So, yeah, that's pretty miraculous. I'm not sure how one gets sentenced a second time for armed robbery and simply walks away. I'm sorry to keep beating that to death, but I just don't understand that. But I do have a lot of friends and family in prison that would probably pay really good money to figure out how he was able to do that. So now we close our eyes, we click our heels, and boom, we're in 1989. And we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. We're back in Louisiana. And Danny decides that he's ready to graduate to murder. I mean, after all, he's done prison time in three states and just magically walked away from one of them and made it back home. So why not? Now, there's not a lot of documented evidence on Danny's first murders like there is on the later ones which earned him the moniker the Gainesville Ripper. But here's the information that there is out there. At around 9 a.m. Monday, November 6th, 1989, Julie Grissom, 24, and her father, Tom Grissom, 55, along with Tom's 8-year-old grandson, were found dead in Tom's Louisiana home. The coroner reported that they were likely murdered during the evening of Saturday, November 4th. Tom was found in the home's utility room, slumped over against the door, as if he was put there to block the entrance in case anybody tried to walk in. Tom's body was riddled with multiple stab wounds in his back and in his chest, and it was likely that he was cooking dinner when Danny entered the house and began the slaughterous attack on this man. Tom's grandson, Sean, again just 8 years old, was found in the living room with a single fatal stab wound in his back. It was likely that the child was watching TV when he was attacked by Danny, and it was likely that Danny used a very large knife. I know in the murders later on, he had a K-Bar military knife, which... Is somewhat like a Rambo knife, but even more brutal. Not something you want to get stabbed with. 24-year-old Julie was found in the bedroom, partially naked on the bed facing upward. It was likely that she was sexually assaulted because she had vinegar poured all over her body and vinegar is kind of used by criminals at least back then when they couldn't get a hold of bleach to try to get you know get rid of any kind of evidence hairs or back then it was his fingerprints mostly but hairs were a, a factor as well now she died from three stab wounds once she was deceased Danny then posed her body with her face staring straight up at the ceiling and her legs spread open in a sexual manner, with her arms sticking out. Now, one other thing to point out for this crime is that Danny lost his job just a couple of days before he committed these murders. I think Danny likely entered the home to rob these people, but then saw something, possibly something that he didn't expect. He saw a female that fit his type. Do you remember his type? Petite, brown hair, brown eyes, and always young. Not super young, but young. She was 24. Unfortunately, Julie fit Danny's type, and she paid dearly for it. After this triple homicide home invasion takes place, Danny then begins to go back to his favorite thing in the world which is rob grocery stores. I seriously believe that Danny actually did fantasize about robbing places when he jerked off. I really, really believe that. I think he got off on it. Maybe not as much as fantasizing about a woman with brown eyes and brown hair that was petite, but I bet it was a close toss-up. Hmm. He obviously got a bit better at committing these robberies, too, because he got away with robbing this time for quite a while. In fact, he never gets arrested for robbing again, even though he's doing it on a regular basis. Now, on May 18th, 1990, Danny shows up at his dear old alcoholic dad's doorstep. He asks his father, James... If he can crash for a couple days because he had nowhere to stay. And I know you're going to be really surprised by this, especially if you remember our conversations about James. But James says no, get the fuck out of here. Now I'm pretty sure that this made Danny have about a million flashbacks of his dad verbally and physically abusing him his entire young life. Possibly even before he knew how to talk. He may have had memories of James abusing him. Danny then pulls out a 38 Special Revolver and he shoots his dad square ass in the stomach. And then while his dad is kneeled over screaming obscenities at him, Danny then slowly walks over to his dad, says a few words to him, and shoots him point-blank, the fucking forehead I'm sure that this is something that he has thought about his entire life and he finally did it now this doesn't kill his father James but it does leave him deformed with only one functional eye and one functional ear let that be a lesson to all you asshole fuckhead dads out there sometimes your kids grow up and they remember everything. And karma is cold, hard, and one wicked son of a bitch. Now, a couple weeks later, Danny breaks into a home belonging to a deceased man named Michael Kennedy Jr. Which is strange because my name is Michael Keeney Jr. Hmm. Danny scores a little come up on this one. He gets the man's ID And to his luck, Kenny does resemble Danny. So he's able to actually use this ID and pass it off as himself. So basically, he breaks into this house, finds an ID with his picture on it, basically, and he gets to use it and get a new name because he's still wanted. Remember, he walked away from prison. So he's got this new identity now, Michael Kennedy Jr. Oh, and as an added bonus... Danny also finds two more pistols to add to his collection, now making his arsenal and even three guns. On August 5th, 1990, Danny finds himself in Sarasota, Florida, which is roughly two and a half hours from Gainesville, Florida, the city that Danny later becomes an infamous household name. On that very night, August 5th, a warm, humid Sunday night, Danny creeps around the home of a 30-year-old real estate agent named Janet Frake. It could be Frake, it's F-R-A-K-E. I'm gonna call it Frake. He slowly creeps around her home, wearing gloves and a mask, until he finds an open window. After he gets inside, Danny encounters Frake. And he's overly joyed when he sees her because she's what? Can you guess? She is his type. Young, with brown hair and brown eyes. So Danny repeatedly raped Frake in basically every room of her house. But with Frake something amazing happens for once. Danny spares her life and finally leaves her home and leaves her alive. This is very important because Freak was able to give multiple interviews about Danny, his M.O., the way that he... the way his demeanor was when he was committing these crimes and these rapes because up until now... Everybody that he's raped that we know about, he killed. So it was definitely, definitely a good, a good thing that he left her alive. Now, during multiple interviews, Frank stated that she only survived because she was able to be really nice to Danny and try to act as though she liked him and possibly even loved him. This is a method that time and time again, has proven to help people stay alive after being raped and held captive. If you remember Danny Parker Ray in episode 2, which I call the tape episode, Ray actually had a paper on the wall to remind himself that any woman that he kidnapped would say anything that they possibly can say to make you trust them. And he's right. But he put that paper up to remind him that because... People don't always remember that. Fortunately, most kidnappers and rapists do not have one of these self-help letters written and hanging in view when they commit these horrible acts upon others. So basically, in between Danny's sexual assaults on Frake, Frake was able to play psychiatrist for Danny. She got into his head. She listened to him tell stories of his childhood, and she bonded with him. And to this day, she's the only living, rape, and home invasion victim of Danny that we know of. So remember that. Not just you women, all of you. Males do get kidnapped and sexually assaulted and tortured as well. It happens a lot more than you think. Jeffrey Dahmer should be able to teach you that. And I know most of you are saying, but I'm not gay. Well, neither was his first victim. Look it up. On August 24th, 1990, Danny rents a hotel room in Gainesville with his new fake ID, and then he does something really weird. He sets up a campsite in the woods just two miles from the University of Florida. It is odd that he rents a hotel room and then sets up a campsite, but hey, Danny did a lot of weird shit. Once his campsite is set up, Danny makes a manifesto cassette tape recording. Danny has always played guitar and wrote songs and sang throughout most of his life. Now, he records a few songs on this tape. Then he tells his family not to worry about him. I'm not sure exactly what family because he says no names and he just shot his father, but I'm guessing his mother his daughter maybe even his ex-wife that he hates and hates him he says in this tape i'm a big boy and i can take care of myself so don't worry about me then he says and i quote now i need to sign off there's something that i have to do end quote this is one of the songs that danny recorded that day it's called mystery rider And it's actually not a bad song. See what you think.
3: Rest in snake hide, wove black leather. and give me a whiskey, cause I'm a feeling and a little risky, and if that ten stars in town, well, you tell him. Like me in the tomb, will it wrong the outlaw?
1: serial killer Danny Rowling song mystery writer and let me clarify I am not glorifying Danny Rowling he was a piece of shit that raped and killed many people and shattered and ruined many lives I'm simply trying to bring you into his mindset Joe so.
6: exotic.
1: oh fuck you know I'm not answering Joe's call fuck him he can wait till next week So as I was saying, he was a piece of shit that raped and killed many people and shattered and ruined many lives. I'm simply trying to bring you into his mindset so you can understand who he was. That's all. I can identify with his childhood a bit too. So psychologically, I like to learn as much as I can about Danny. So Danny records this tape at a campsite that he sets up after getting a hotel room. Remember how I talked about that? After getting a hotel room, right? And to me, I I think he set up the campsite because he wanted to record the tape and be left alone where it was peaceful and quiet. He likely rented the hotel room because he needed a shower and needed to look presentable since he was getting ready to break in and kill people on a college campus. So he couldn't be walking around there looking like a homeless bum, even though on a lot of college campuses there are homeless bums. So he needed to blend in a a little bit. So that's the reason why I think that he rented the hotel room and then set up the campsite. Plus, he had a new handy-dandy ID via Michael Kennedy Jr., and that allowed him to use that ID to rent a hotel room, which... I'm thinking Danny probably didn't have the means to do a whole lot being that he was wanted and walked away from prison. So Danny makes this tape. At the end of the tape, he says, I have to sign off. There's something that I have to do. Meaning that he knew that he was going to kill people. And in my mind, I think he was gonna kill people to get a name. Let's kind of look at what he did. He set up a campsite about two miles from the University of Florida and made a manifesto tape of something that he was going to do. These were not rape crimes that were just like heat of the moment things, a crime of opportunity. No, he, he planned to do this. He planned for people to know. He planned to pose the bodies. He had just shot his dad. Who was a cop? Yeah, he may have been an alcoholic piece of shit cop, but he was still a cop. It don't matter what cop you shoot or how you're related to that cop. He shot a cop. And he knew that he was going down. His face was likely, I mean, this was 1991. His face was likely all over the TV, all over the, the newspapers and everything. So what he wanted to do because I don't know if I've explained what Danny looks like. Danny was tall, he was about six feet tall, and he was really skinny, probably about maybe 175, 180 pounds. Not muscular at all. Just your normal average skinny white guy balding with brown hair. And uh, I think that he literally wanted to make a name before he went in the prison, because he knew this time he wasn't gonna just walk away. Not after shooting his dad. There were also the murders in Louisiana that he... The murders and the rapes that he left. So this guy, he knew that he was going down. He wanted to go down big. Now, what else was happening around that time? Right around the 90s. Also in Florida. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy killed sorority girls right up the street from the University of Florida... Florida State which is literally 140 miles away so at this time Bundy's being put to death but he got all of this all of this media attention women calling him not not calling him writing him asking to marry him he was all over the news all of the prison staff and prison inmates and everything they all Knew who he was. He had this infamacy about him, right? And Danny wanted that. If he was going to go down, he was fucking going down big, baby. Loaded gun complex, cock it and pull it. So that's what I see. And I've never heard anybody talk about him basically trying to copy Ted Bundy in a way. Why else would you choose a, a Florida prison to go rape and kill and dismember a woman or women in this situation. That's the only thing that makes sense. And why would you make a tape right before that saying I have something that I have to do? He knew what he was going to do. He had to do it in his mind to make a name for himself. And guess what? It worked. And now, I have to do something that I really don't want to do as well. I have to sign off because there's something that I have to do. And that is get ready for my discussion for my guest for this show. And if you haven't read the title yet, this is part one. And my deepest apologies for having to break this episode into two. I fucking hate whenever I have to listen to part two and part three of all my favorite podcasts. But you know what? This one... There's just no way that I was going to be able to pull this one off, do all the clips, do everything that I wanted to do within, like, three hours. And I'm not going to expect anybody to sit there and listen to three hours. So I'm going to play a song right now from Soviet Shiska. It's actually Soviet Shikska. So I'm probably butchering that, but that's what I kind of do on this show. Infamous Butcher
4: Music and Murder.
1: Where we butcher everybody's name, but anyway, I think it's Soviet Shikska, and we're going to be talking to the singer as soon as the song is over, and his name is Christopher Sean, very interesting guy, and uh, I think you're gonna, I think you're really gonna dig this discussion. So, this song is called Dallas. It is recorded live. I actually saw the video of him recording it live with everybody in the studio together recording at one time, including his vocals, which is pretty much unheard of these days. So please check this song out. It is about, it is about a murder, so that's pretty cool on this show. And as soon as the song's over, we're going to do a discussion. And I will have part two of this show about Danny Harold Rolling out really, really soon. So please don't be too upset. Also, if you're on IG... Murder underscore... Excuse me. Music underscore murder underscore podcast. Facebook music and murder podcast. Please look me up. I will follow you back. And I will talk to you in just a little while when I talk to Chris. But I will have the episode out talking directly to you in a couple weeks. And we're also probably going to take a call from Joe fucking exotic. So... I will talk to you guys soon. Enjoy this song.
2: Mexico. She had hell like a wildfire, and skin as white as snow <laughs>
1: Calling Christopher Sean. Oh, that's loud. This is Chris. Hey, Chris. This is Michael. Hey, Michael. All right, so I tried to call you and uh, I had the wrong input on. I do something weird when I do my phone calls. I've tried a lot of things. I've tried like different like platforms and shit like that from Zoom to everything. And the thing that works the best, I have this little Marshall speaker, this little Bluetooth speaker that I kind of put the microphone in between me and the Bluetooth speaker. And that has been the clearest that I've been able to I've only think I think I did the last two phone calls like that and it's nice because if we talk over each other it doesn't cut off each other and it doesn't like go into kind of goes over each other and then everything cancels out? Yeah. So I'm assuming you got to uh, listen to the, the episode, the part one? I, I did. And my apologies that I didn't tell you that it was going to be a part one because I didn't think that it was going to be a part one. <laughs> I, got, I got towards the end and I was just like, oh, my God, there was so much shit that I wanted to throw in, so many clips and so many things that literally it's another hour and a half and I can't do a three-hour podcast. You literally can't even upload it. So I'm just like, okay, I, I got to cut it into two.
5: Well, there's, there's, there's a lot to this guy, so it's, uh, I, I understand, the, I mean, I understand that you had to do it, for sure.
1: He's very complicated, he's very, very complex, and uh, so let's start off first, let's introduce people, uh, they just got to hear, or introduce you to people, they just got to hear your song Dallas, and uh, I'm sure you heard the segue going into that, that I said that like you recorded live and all that stuff, um, what studio did you actually record that at? And and oh, let's start off with your proper pronouncing of your band name cuz I know I, I don't think I got it completely right.
5: Uh no. Um it is Soviet Shiksa.
1: Shiksa. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, I was reading it and I'm just like, how do I I for some reason it just doesn't it doesn't roll off my tongue very well, so I was like, okay, I know I'm fucking this up. So Hopefully, I didn't mess it up too bad. I think I should have said something along those lines, but anyway, Soviet Shiksa. Let's talk about how you came about that name for your musical project.
5: Well, um, they're very busy words. And, uh, they pop, and they they uh, the Soviet Union uh, always intrigued me. And um, so, are, are you are you Russian? No. no. Oh, okay. Okay and uh, yiddish slang is also very interesting to me and the the uh, the backhanded connotations behind the word shiksa and uh what does it how it, mean? it it's it's yiddish slang uh, it's hebrew um it it, it means like a, a non-gentile woman an impure woman um like essentially like uh, in jewish culture a, a shiksa is a is a a non-jewish woman who uh Is a bit of a seductress a temptress or a whore um okay so she's like a hoe
1: it's like a it's
5: okay yeah
1: it's it's a hoe
5: essentially (laughs) but uh you know over the past hundred years it's been softened quite a bit like it's used in pop culture to a point um old europe doesn't really care for it that much and uh, older jewish folks seem to still think it's pretty heavy-handed word but uh yeah it's just it's just interesting for sure yeah, the Soviet
1: Union has some pretty crazy stuff. A lot of bands wrote songs about it from the Beatles, and, you know, it must be a cool place. Did, did you ever go there?
5: I have not been uh, to Russia. What
1: places have you been, like, abroad?
5: Uh, none. Uh, no, oh, you're like been. me. I stay in America. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not a very worldly guy. Now, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Florida, uh, Clearwater, Tampa Bay area. Moved around quite a bit. Eventually, my mother brought me to Nashville when I was 13, and I've I've been here ever since. Wow!
1: Yeah, that's one thing I forgot to to mention. Chris uh, is—he lives in Nashville. He plays in Nashville. His band is based out of Nashville. What studio did you actually record Dallas in? Uh,
5: The the Live from Nashville series uh, we did at a place called County Q. uh, My engineer and producer, Weston Wellman.
1: Nice. And uh, I'm sure you probably get some perks with your job, and I'm not talking about music stuff. And... Any of the drummers that are going to be listening on here are about ready to get hard and probably whack off, but Christopher actually works for Pearl Drums and has worked there for a very significant amount of time. Uh,
5: that is that is true. I've been there for, for 16 years or so, and I've done many things while I've been there.
1: That is awesome. Anybody that like you have personally worked with, with their order or anything like that, to where they wanted something fucking crazy, Do, doesn't Tools Drummer play Pearl? No, no. Ken, oh, he Ken, doesn't? Ken, okay. He plays uh, DW. I believe he's Sonar. Oh, Sonar. Okay, okay. Huh. I'm picturing yeah, I, his kid. Yeah, I
5: could be mistaken about that. He might be a Ludwig guy. I'm, I'm not. I'm not I don't really think it's fond.
1: Ludwig. I, I don't, I don't think so. But who, who's somebody that you've actually? I mean, not. I'm not seeing him even met, but like something that you saw their shit being produced, and you're like, oh fuck, that's gonna be played in front of millions and millions
5: of people. The one time I was really affected, I think, when I was shipping something is. Um, Ringo Starr was ordering something from us and I, I remember shipping it and seeing his address and just being overwhelmed in that moment. Like, Where, where is this, was his address? Where does he live now? Oh, this was years ago and it probably wasn't even his address. It was probably being shipped to somewhere, a studio. Like, or... A friendly place of his in the States somewhere. Okay. Um, but addressed to him, I, I remember being relatively starstruck even though that was such a small, minute thing, but I'm, I'm such a huge Beatles fan. Uh, that was pretty cool for me. But I mean, I've literally handled hundreds, if not thousands of artist orders at this point. And it's kind of hard to pinpoint any particular one that I found interesting. And we have artists in, in the building all the time. And it's an interesting place to work, especially if you're a fan of music.
1: That is cool. Yeah. I mean, Pirellis, they, they've been around, I'm 48 years old. And I mean, like I've followed music since I was born. My dad played with Waylon Jennings. He played with Merle Haggard. I mean, we, we came from, right by Bakersfield in California. So he was all over the scene and... uh you know i just grew up around music my whole life and i i always remember pearl being a staple in the music business if you could afford them they they were never cheap so it was always like something that was like it was like owning a les paul gibson or something if you had a pearl drum set
5: yeah there's definitely a, a bit of prestige with the pearl brand that uh, you don't necessarily get with certain brands that that much is true and uh, our artist roster over the years has kind of reflected that and, um, uh, you know, while we're not we're not necessarily the cheapest um, brand in the stores, we are the best for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I, I think that uh, any any good drummers that I know that can afford it, it's they're either going to go with DW or they're going to go with with Pearl. You know, for the for the most part, unless unless there's something I don't know. I'm not a drummer. I but I've played with a million fucking drummers, so I just know that DW and Pearl always has seemed to be the staple. Ludwig's in there too. Uh, my uncle, he. He has a couple of the clear sets, the old 1960 something or early 70 clear sets, and I know those are worth a fortune. And to me, they sound like shit. It could be the heads that he that he uses, but I mean, they don't they don't really sound that good. But they look really cool.
5: Yeah, acrylic drum sets, uh, they have projection issues, um, and the thing is, they're 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 very specific and they're relatively limited, and they don't. In my my experience with them, some of them don't necessarily age well. They've come a long way. Um, Pearl recently redid some acrylic kits on the Crystal Beat series, and from what I understand, from what I've heard from drummers, they're pretty fantastic, they tune well, and they, they hold well. They're hard to ship, because when you ship a wooden drum kit, there's some give in the box that moves around with acrylics there's no give so it's just to, like, yeah. things around they tend to crack pretty easily interesting
1: now dallas let's talk a little bit about before we get into talking about danny danny herald rolling let's uh, talk a little bit about the song dallas you don't got to go in the detail but i know it's about a date that gone really bad
5: yeah essentially uh a drifter of uh, of sorts is having himself a night, and uh, he meets a lady at a bar, takes her back to a hotel room, uh, wakes up the next morning uh, feeling the after effects of a of a bender, and realizes that there's a woman dead in his bed, and uh, it's kind of him dealing with the consequences of the, the night before, and it's him reflecting on it years later, how he kind of got away with murder essentially okay so he uh, does get away with it um, towards the end of the song he's 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 talking about something in the past and yeah i guess you could interpret it as he got away but i mean he wasn't
1: in prison so he was obviously talking in a bar talking to somebody or something like that
5: right we we, i guess we don't know now that i'm thinking about it you don't necessarily know it's up to interpretation i reckon
1: so, what'd you think of uh, what did you think of Danny Rowland's song "Mystery Rider"?
5: Uh, it was it was more fun than I anticipated when it started off. Um, like I, I when it kicked off, I was like, "Okay, this is just kind of your, your basic situation," but uh, it was fun. It was uh, it was nice tone tapping. I would say it was
1: interesting. I could actually see like Johnny Cash releasing that song if you changed a few things around. Like Johnny Cash would never use frisky with the word whiskey. I think that is literally the worst fucking line in the whole song but honestly the way that it's written if you put a nice little pre-chorus in there and you actually change some things around it wouldn't be the worst song it's definitely i've studied a lot of people that have sang and killed people because i mean obviously this is my show music and murder and i try to keep most of it around musicians when i can but that's not always going to be the case because there's not a whole lot of musicians that turn into serial killers or or murderers at, at all but the ones that I have listened to, he is about the only one that actually could write a decent fucking song and actually had a decent voice.
5: Yeah. Well, I would never put any rhyme scheme out of the reach of uh, Johnny Cash. I mean, yeah, Did, I don't he,
1: think he's too good for <laughs> you're it. You're probably right about that. Yeah. But it, it just like I could just see like the whole mystery writer riding in the town, and you know, Johnny Cash just kind of singing that that type of song. Maybe not that song, but definitely was 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 kind of that now um do you follow any serial killer stuff i know that i know we've talked and and i know that you're not like the biggest true crime fan or anything like that but i mean does do you watch any of the uh, true crime shows or anything like that to where you you kind of know about ted bundy you kind of know about any of the more popular serial killers that the media actually loved
5: i probably have a decent handle on some of the bigger names uh, when i was younger I dug pretty deep into to Manson and uh, the FBI's involvement, and his madness, and uh, but outside of like, he, you know, the heavy hitters, I'd say I, I haven't really dug too deep.
1: Did you have you heard before this case? Have you ever heard about uh, about Danny Rowling?
5: I have purely because of his association with the city of Shreveport, and also because of how it's like the loose. Uh, it, it basically, he inspired the writer of Scream, the the screenwriter of Scream. Exactly, um, and I did talk yeah. a little oh. bit about that, but yeah, yeah, that's how I was kind of uh, associated with. I had, that's how I knew of this guy. Basically. And, and you
1: know what's weird about the the Scream movie is that I I don't I don't see it like studying what i've studied i mean i've literally watched every documentary i read the book that he wrote with with sandra and uh, this this woman Sandra, that he meets later and he actually marries her and stuff like that before they execute him and um i I just i've done so much research on this guy and i know everything that he pretty much did as far as his story because i mean you have to remember he didn't have but one single and i talked about her in part one um i can't remember i think her name was janet something um i'm trying to remember her last name but he had one victim that survived so we have to always take everything that he says with a grain of salt because we only have one story he left his dad alive so we do know his dad's story but he didn't rape his dad he didn't behead his dad but um it it just
5: came close the man's well, he, he
1: tried he shot him right in the fucking forehead i mean you, you don't you don't actually if you would have had a bigger gun if he would have actually had like a 44 or 45 or even a 357 he, he would have killed that man there's no way you're gonna get shot in the forehead with a big gun and actually survive so he's lucky that danny had a little gun um but he did he did try to kill him but I'm, what i'm saying as far as the stories i have seen scream i've seen scream multiple times when i was when i was younger. And uh, I just I, I I see the slasher part because Danny did like to stab people with a k-bar gun and a military issued k-bar knife, not gun. Sorry about that. Um, but other than that, there was really no similarities. He never called his victims. He did wear a mask, but it was just a regular. It was just a regular ski mask. He didn't have a costume on. And yeah, what, uh, I,
5: the, what I the the correlations I made were essentially like. The kind of who done it atmosphere that was around the the scenario while it was happening the, the, the fear that was like in this 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 town at the time um, and it was college students
1: so I, I will give him that too because you know it was college students you
5: know, in, Inspiration's a funny thing like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was inspired by Ed Gein and there is I mean as far as similarities go there aren't many um, aside from like you know furniture making like that's that's about it.
1: Yeah, and a lot of that was Ed Gain too. Ed Gain, Ed Gain was the reason for three different movies. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Ed, Ed Gain. Um, I can't remember the state. Somebody's probably gonna email me and be like, "You're a dumb fuck." You're, you say you say you know about serial killers. It's I know it's somewhere like it's it's some small town. But Ed Gain was the reason for Psycho. Ed Gain was the reason for uh, the guy on Silence of the Lambs, uh, Bill. And oh, there was one other movie too that he inspired. But Ed Gain, was he was digging up bodies. I believe this was the late 50s. I'm probably going to do an episode on Ed Gain because he's kind of popular, but not popular enough to where I think people know enough about him. But it's been a long time since I studied him. But he was digging up bodies, and he literally was making furniture out of them, lamps. And he had, he had like one lamp that was just made of nipples, literally just nipples. So, And, and he did kill a couple women. He didn't kill a lot. I don't, I'm not even sure that he killed enough women to be considered a serial killer because a serial killer has to have a cooling off period and they have to kill uh, three people. So I, I think that he just committed two homicides, if I remember right. But there might have been three.
5: Yeah, I think Toby Hooper explained the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as if, imagine, an entire family of uh, Ed Gaines.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was a pretty brutal story. And the cannibalism that went along with that as well. And... Yeah, I'm going to have to do a I'm going to have to do an episode on that cuz everybody's seen one of the movies. There's three different movies if I remember right. And um, I don't think that a lot of people know the whole story behind it. I don't even know the whole story behind it. I know that it was based loosely on on a real event. What what else do you know about about that family? Like like the uh, like the non-fictional uh, stuff.
5: Are we talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Yes, sir. Yeah. There's way more than three movies. There are four in the original series. Um, there's a slew of prequels and remakes. Uh, that but
1: those one are different names, right? They weren't all called te- Texas Chainsaw Massacre, were they? Or was it Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1, 2, and 3?
5: Well, you had Texas Chainsaw Massacre, then you had Part 2. Then Part 3 was originally marketed as Leatherface 3. But I remember they, that one, yeah. They modified the Texas Chainsaw 3. Then there was Number 4, The Next Generation, and then... I think after that, there was a reboot and remake in 2003, and then there was a prequel called The Beginning, and then there was a movie that came out in 2013 that served as a direct sequel to the first one that oh, shit. disregarded the chronology of the other movies. Yeah, it's, it's been a weird, sordid situation.
1: Man, yeah, you you just uh you talked me into definitely doing a case on that because I did not know there was so many movies. Now I remember I remember the original one and then I remember this the second one and then I remember one that came out and I, I remember the very beginning started off of Sweet Home Alabama from Leonard Skinner. It actually had they were at the river and it started off with that song and it was a newer one. It was modern. I think they had cell phones in it. So that might have been the, the 2013 one. I, I don't know. But it wasn't. It doesn't seem that long ago. And the soundtrack did have some newer music in it, it seems like. But yeah, I didn't know there were so many. That's uh, that's 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 good to know.
5: Yeah, there's, there's plenty of them. To, and, and for the most part, they're all relatively watchable, especially the first four. In my opinion, none of them really are as good as the second one. If you want grit... And, and, and just raw horror. The first one is what you want to watch, but the second one's more fun. It's got Dennis Hopper in it. It's
1: That's, it's, okay, I remember that one. What's the one where he keeps burning the thing, like he's got that little plate on his head, and he keeps burning like a, I guess it's a clothes hanger, and he keeps like lighting this clothes hanger on, like, like burning it, and then he burns the back of his head. Which one was yeah, that in?
5: That's the character Chop Top, and he's played by Bill Mosley. That's in the second one.
1: Okay, so that's I have seen that one. Okay, yeah, it seems like I've seen all of them, but it's just been it's been so long, and I have never I've never studied that real case. All I know on that case is that it was inspired, at least loosely, by by a real family, and that was that was in Texas. Do you remember what uh, what city that was?
5: Uh, oh hell, and if you I don't, should... don't don't worry. I'm not trying to put you I on the spot. Don't, I, just... I don't know it because I mean I, I I've planned trips to, to go to the little little barbecue bed and breakfast situation they got down there and oh they uh, have one like for the movie yeah the original house i think is now currently like a bed and breakfast you can stay overnight they'll have a screening of the movie um, the gas station, I think, also is a barbecue uh, restaurant now.
1: Oh my god, my listeners are gonna love that shit. They're they're probably gonna get booked out in the next few months because of us <laughs> just plugging that. Yeah, I get I get people all the time asking, you know, hey, what would be a good place to visit that was like, you know, that is like a bed and breakfast, a breakfast that you could stay at, where people were actually murdered. And I'm like, I you know, I don't really get into that aspect of it, but they would love this place. I'm sure if, I'm sure if they Google it, they'll find it. Oh yeah, for sure. Interesting. Yeah, I have no idea what city that was that was that took place in. I imagine it was somewhere somewhere real rural. You're probably not talking about Dallas or Houston or Austin or San Antonio or Amarillo or any of the bigger cities. It's probably going to be something that you've never really heard of. If 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 I have my phone right here but I'm not even going to look. People people can look it up if they want to look it up, but that sounds like a cool place.
5: Yeah, the Texas Chancellor House, I, I want to say it's it's a little, it's northwest of Austin by anywhere from 30 to 50 miles. My Austin people, um, they're close to it. That's, really? Up that's to, to Austin, yeah.
1: Now, is that the direction San Marcos is towards San Antonio, or is that the opposite direction?
5: Oh, I don't know. I don't know that much about Texas. Okay,
1: because in between, right between right between um, San Antonio and Austin, there's one freeway in that in San Marcos is in the middle of that, and that's where Texas State is. I believe it's Texas State. It's a big Texas University. San Marcos is a big college town, so my cousin lives over there. So it might be the, it might be the opposite, opposite direction. It might be right around where he lives. But it is called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre House.
5: Oh, I, I, yeah, I don't know what they call it, but basically the, the house from the movie and the gas station from the movie. Um, the house from the movie is the bed and breakfast, the gas station. I believe they're a barbecue restaurant now. Um, relatively popular in the, in the horror community as far as like tourist sites go and filming locations. Uh, the bridge from the second one is close to there, and that's a real fun spot for, for fans of the movie series to check out as well.
1: Would that be a place that you would actually trust to eat and that it wouldn't be human flesh?
5: I would imagine.
1: <laughs> would <be>. okay. <laughs> you pull up, you're like, oh, this is really tasty meat. I've never tasted anything like it. And you got some old man with blood all over his lips be like, and you never will, boy.
5: Good lord.
1: <laughs> Alright, so back to Danny Rowling. Now, what I'm putting together is is like what I said towards the very end. I think that when he actually made that tape and actually had that, because he sang in court, and we're gonna go over this a lot in, in part two. He really always just wanted people to hear his voice. So I'm thinking that he made this tape with these songs in it. Because, I mean, you're talking in the 90s where if you don't have a record deal, you're not going to get hurt. It wasn't like today where you can get YouTube, you can get on a podcast. I mean, XM, there, there's a million different outlets that didn't that, that wasn't around then. You didn't have the fucking internet. So either you were on FM radio or nobody knew who you were. So I'm thinking he might have actually thought... Hey, I'm a really good singer. I got these great songs. I'm going to go to prison for life because I just shot my dad. He's a cop. There's no way I'm ever going to get out. I've already escaped from a prison. Tried to escape another time before escaping that time. I have all this these robberies. I have this rap sheet a million miles long. I'm not going to get out this time. And plus, I'm getting older. You know, I can't remember his exact age whenever he he did the, uh, the, the killings, but he was 52 when he died. And I, I believe that he died... 2013 i want to say so he was 52 in 2013 so he was getting older whenever he he did these murders he wasn't you know 18 20 years old so he knew that he'd probably never get out and my thing is i think that he wanted to make this manifesto and what really gets me is at the end of this tape at the end of this tape he says i have to sign off now there's something i have to do and this is like you know he goes and commits these these rapes and everything and uh, this murder, and I don't want to like put in too much of the murders because I want people to listen to episode two. But a lot of people know that he he murdered and raped these women post-mortem and posed their bodies and beheaded them, did, did a lot of stuff like that. And I don't think that that was really him. I don't think that, and I don't mean that he didn't do it. He definitely fucking did it. I'm saying that that wasn't his M.O. That wasn't who he was. I think that he did that just to make a name for himself because right around that time ted bundy was all over the news and stuff like that so i mean what what are your thoughts on that do you think that there's any merit to that
5: well yeah i mean he said that himself he he if, if memory serves he made it very clear that his motive was to become in his words i think a superstar um like like ted bundy because like you said ted was very very popular right and the this guy is kind of the prototype for the 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 constantly shot upon dude who is just looking for some sort of way to make a name for himself and the, the aggressive nature of his crimes, the disrespect he has for the, the women he tortured and raped and killed like yeah and just the shock exact-
1: value just the shock value of what he did it's almost like he was trying to outdo ted he's like oh well, i could i could do this and i could like pose these bodies and have her head overlooking her body and you know all this weird shit that has never been done and to this day i don't think it's it's really been done much in america yeah
5: and, and once he was i mean after he was sentenced he was incredibly apologetic i think he uh,
1: very remorse- remorseful very yeah, extremely
5: remorseful yeah, yeah. He, he 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 wanted fame he wanted acclaim And this was the only means that he could actually uh, have it. And with that aside, he also had terrible, terrible urges that he had to fulfill. Yeah, it's
1: just a. Do you believe that he had that he had multiple personality disorder? Do you do you believe then? Because he talks about, and we're going to talk about this in episode two. I'm going to talk about this in episode two, uh, the second part. He had two different people that he had names for. I can't remember what the first name was, but the second one was Gemini, and we talked about that and he really diagnosed himself with these personality disorders and he really thought that he had two other people living inside of him. And I know quite a bit about that. And he just didn't seem to fit the criteria to me. But I mean, that's just my opinion. That doesn't, you know, it's, it, it's just my opinion. That's all
2: it is.
5: Yeah. Um, the gentleman Talk aside, I mean, he was he was diagnosed um, by professionals um, as a sociopath, uh, antisocial personality disorder. I know that. Yeah, the guy, I mean, he he wasn't all there. He had a lot, a lot of problems and um, it's all kind of obvious within all of his crimes. But yeah, I definitely believe he had all of that for sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I,
1: I, I really, I, I don't think that that was all there. And that's the reason why I love talking to somebody that actually knows what they're talking about. And somebody that's, that's brilliant because I mean, these things, I don't care if I'm talking to somebody that's got four PhDs. It's like, no matter what, it boils down to opinion. Even if you're diagnosed by two or three doctors, that's those two, three doctors opinions. We, we don't know enough about the human brain to where we could just scientifically say, Hey, this is the way it is. The only way we'd be able to do that is to actually have him cloned and bring him up in the same atmosphere and see if that if he you know he repeats his his same self again and we'd have to put him in the same era. So, I mean, besides that, all you could do is just give your opinions. So, I love to hear other people's opinions on it and I I think you definitely have a point on that, you know, for sure. What about okay, so obviously there was some biological stuff that was going on with his brain he was told in third grade that he was that he needed counseling and stuff like that do you think like the way that i think the way that he uh, his dad killed his dog and it died in his arms and stuff like that do you think that kind of just kind of set him over the edge and really changed his life forever because i think that that was one of the biggest changing points in his life besides his mom Leaving all the time and trying to commit suicide.
5: Yeah. Like biology can only take you so far. Uh, A man like Danny Rowling is a product of environment just as much as he is his own biology. And his mother and his father and his entire home life did a serious number on him.
1: Yeah.
5: Yeah. I mean, essentially, like he was basically made to feel completely and totally unwanted, unexpected and unappreciated from birth. And they yeah, like, did him no favors.
1: Yeah, like I coined the term. Like I've never heard anybody use it, and I don't. I don't think anybody's ever used it. But I call it narcher. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I actually wrote a paper in, in school. Uh, I'm actually in grad school in Fresno State of Criminology, so I'm actually working on a paper right now for something completely different, but it has to do with with serial killers. But uh, it's uh, when you hear the terms n- nature and nurture all the time. There's just no way to tell one or the other. Now, we've done studies on twins, and it does turn out to be that nature is fucking huge, totally huge. But we've also seen where nurture is totally huge. I mean, you have Ted Bundy, for example. Ted Bundy had a great childhood. In fact, I think even through all the murder, through the trials and everything, his mom still stuck by his side. Like, he had the perfect childhood. He went to fucking law school. He he did all this stuff. He was not supposed to be this guy that was beheading women and fucking their corpse. You know, so that was completely nature. That was just something that he was just born evil. And uh, the last episode, episode five, where, where we talked about uh, Paul Dennis Reed, the, uh, the Nashville uh, fast food killer, that was a hard one, too. You know, that that was very nurture-like because, I mean, he didn't have a good home life. I mean, being hugged and being told I love you, it goes a long fucking way.
5: Yeah, Ted Bundy is interesting to me just purely because he was a complete sadist. Like, he enjoyed every bit of what he did. He enjoyed the control. He, he enjoyed the act of murder. He enjoyed the act acts of torture, the violence. He, oh, yeah. He, he embraced it. It was what he was. And, and he was a he, total nick
1: necrophili- necrophiliac right back, too.
5: And in a great home life, like and it didn't make a difference. That's what he wanted to do. That's that's what he enjoyed.
1: Yeah, and he was a true necrophiliac and you don't really see many of those. He literally okay, so his his, his girlfriend And I don't know if you've actually seen the movie, and they didn't even touch on this in the movie, the one with with Zac Efron, which is, it's a watchable movie. It's a decent movie. Zac Zac is a great actor. I I love Zac, so I thought that he was great in it. But there was just so many things they didn't touch on. Now, I've seen interviews with his, his girlfriend that he had in real life, and he never sadistically did anything to her, like hurt her, tried to hurt her, tried to talk her, and let him hurt her. Basically, the only thing that he did that was out of the ordinary when he would fuck her... Is he had her play dead a lot? Now try that with your old lady, you know, or your partner or something. It's not easy to tell your girlfriend that you've just been fucking for a couple months. Hey, can you please just act like you're dead?
5: Yeah, it's an odd request.
1: It's a very odd request. So I mean, but that in my mind, that that puts that 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 really just staples that down. That Ted Bundy wasn't only sadistic. He wasn't only a psychopath. He was also literally into fucking dead bodies. Like, he is the guy that would literally probably go to the morgue if there was a body that wasn't already de- decomposed, and he would probably get off on having sex with it, you know, completely all day long. It, it had something to do with the killing. He loved to bash in people's heads. He loved to do all that. But I think, first and foremost, he loved to fuck dead bodies. You know, I think that was very important to him, which goes on with what you said is with control. Because what can you do with a dead body? You can do anything you want with a dead body, so that really shows that control over another another person's body. Yeah. Who are some other uh, murders that you've actually studied?
5: Um, Manson's probably the one I the most reading, and I understand the most. And that was more of a high school phase. Like uh, I read the book *Helter Skelter* and just kind of dug as deep as I could. Wikipedia, when I was in high school, and kind of kept up with the case over the years. Um, a lot of interesting stuff has come out over the years about the uh, the CIA's involvement with Manson and how they he was basically like a, an LSD guinea pig with mind control. And uh, but um, other, so you're other saying, than that, wait a minute, I, you're, I know a lot about.
1: You're saying that the CIA actually worked with Manson before he was arrested.
5: Um, after, cause oh, okay. it okay. was kind of like a, a product of the system. Like he was in and out of jail, um, as a child, man was uh, a transient tramp. Um, but oh, yeah,
1: I know a lot about Manson. I just didn't know about that part.
5: Can't remember the name of the author, but essentially this guy has just finished over the past, like five years, this guy got out of like a 25 year deep dive into the CIA's involvement with the Manson family and Charles Manson. And essentially Charles was uh, they used LSD on him uh, while incarcerated. they they at they, Corcoran
1: State Prison, which is only like about forty minutes from where I live,
5: correct. and they they would monitor his interactions with the family from the outside. They provided him with LSD. Like he was essentially, our government.
1: Our government don't do things like that
5: right. They, he was one of many um, people that they they experimented um, with LSD and mind control. And Manson would later use the techniques they used on him with the family. Uh, Which is really the- weird
1: because when he had the family and he had Tex and, you know, Cobb and, and the, the girl, Sarah, and the other ones go out and, and kill these people, you know, at the, at the tape place and stuff like that, he actually wasn't not using drugs at all and not drinking or smoking weed or anything. He was completely sober. So that's really right. weird that afterwards that he's actually doing LSD.
5: Yeah, interesting thing about the tate labianca murders that, I, that uh, I've recently come to understand, uh, at least believe, uh, no one really knows what happens. It happened there except for the people that were there, was essentially Charles told them to kind of go up there, and I, I can't remember the weird 60s term he, he told them, but basically he just wanted them to get up there and scare them. He wanted to do a little little raid and freak some people out. But the way it seems, based on everything I've read and heard, is that Tex and his little crew panicked and just started killing people. Maybe they got and caught. And Tex, Tex was one. a killer.
1: Tex was a killer. He, was, he, was, he He enjoyed it.
5: Yeah. He got in there. He wasn't told to do it, but it ended up happening by hook or by crook for whatever reason. And then the second night of murders was planned for sure. But the first one, from what I've read, from what I've gathered, for whatever reason, it just kind of happened. Whether it was... Uh, planned by text my understanding is that charlie did not want that to happen the first time around
1: very interesting very interesting and i've always said i think i've said on a couple episodes that i'm never going to do an episode on charlie manson because it's already been crammed down our fucking throats for many many years but this is completely different and i would like to do an episode on him because a lot of people don't realize that all of these murders and everything actually manifested from him not being able to get a record deal because the dude from the beach boys was supposed to get him a record deal that didn't happen that's where that guy lived you know um uh sharon tate lived there with her with her husband uh what is it roman polowski polanski Bl- yeah and he was actually making a movie called rosemary's baby uh somewhere else and uh, but that they had just moved in that house like just fucking months before that so the dude that he was looking for, which I can't remember his name off my head, the top of my head, but I think it was Brian something, but they were looking for him, the guy from the Beach Boys, and yeah. and he was just pissed off because he didn't get a fucking record deal. So, I mean, you know, that that would be a perfect story for music and murder.
5: Yeah, and his boy from the Beach Boys, who the name is escaping me as well. Um, he actually helped him record some demos. Um, oh, he there,
1: believed in him. He liked him. And, and he, he was able to fuck Charlie's women. And then, like, I mean, he was doing all Charlie's dope. And, you know, I mean, so I, they had they had a relationship.
5: And Charles' music is not terrible. It's actually listenable. Well, pre-prison. He released a lot of stuff after he was in prison. A lot of, like, shitty, like, cell phone level recordings and all that stuff. But um, look at your game. Yeah, look uh, at your game, girl. We'll there's, there's some other good ones.
1: Yeah, the, it was not horrible, but he was not a good singer, and he wasn't that good of a guitarist. He would he would have been he would if at the best he would have been a good he would have been a decent songwriter. Probably, oh. I mean his his voice just wasn't it, it wasn't up to par. I mean even Danny Rowling wasn't the best singer, but he's his his voice is a hundred times better than Charles Manson's voice was. But it and all depends like, on preference. Yeah, it's
5: definitely up to taste.
1: I'm not I'm not I'm not on the voice as a as a. Uh, you know Adam Levine or anything like that, so I'm not really going to judge any vocalist. But I just, I don't know. Every time I've ever heard Charlie sing, I was just like, ah, that's nothing that I want to listen to. That's
5: understandable.
1: Yeah, but he did, he did have some decent, some decent songwriting stuff, and he had to have something, you know, in him to make all those people follow him. And mostly, it was
5: music. Yeah, it was, it was music and acid. He had a lot of acid, and people tend to listen to the guy who sounds like he knows what he's talking about with <laughs> they acid.
1: The guy, the 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 guy, the, the golden rule: who he, he who has the most dope is gonna be the the one that people are gonna listen to. That's that's kind of true. Yeah, yep. I, I never really looked at it that way. Well, go we're go, go ahead and uh, segue into the song. Go ahead and introduce the song "Rise." Tell people where they can find your stuff. Tell people about your YouTube video. Uh, I mean, not your video, but just your YouTube channel and uh, your IG or anything that you want to push people towards.
5: Absolutely. So uh, this song Rise, um, this particular version is from a festival we did um, for Halloween called the Festival of Ghouls in 2020. It was an online festival. Thank you very much, COVID. Yeah. And um, it is the sequel to a song called Dolores. Um, you can hear Dolores Rise, the studio versions for all of these on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, uh all of those title, whatever. Um, you can see the live videos from the festival of ghouls and they're live from Nashville series on my YouTube channel. Just search Soviet Shiksa
1: and tell people uh, how to spell Shitska. Sh-
5: Shitska. Yeah, uh, Soviet is S O V I E T as I'm sure they all know. And Shiksa is S H I K S A. And you can find us on Instagram, uh, Twitter, where I express terrible opinions about music and fantasy football, and uh, yeah, we're, we're everywhere online that you would expect somebody to be.
1: Nice, and I definitely want to have you, if not on for a guest again, because I, I, I think that you're very knowledgeable. I think you're more knowledgeable about this serial killer shit than you realize. And I, I enjoy talking to you and I'd love to have you on, but no matter what, whenever you uh, have future songs come out, send them my way, you know, and I'll, I'll throw them in whenever, whenever I have a spot for them. And uh, I love what you're doing. I, I, let's talk one more thing that we need to talk about that guitar tone your guitar yes. tone is amazing and you were you told me when we talked for a minute the other day you told me two pedals that you were using to get that tone
5: well essentially it's really it's one pedal um it, it's all about having a rolling jazz chorus which is the amp um, okay so except- you're using a rolling jazz okay yeah, which is probably the best solid-state solid amp you're going to find um, for cleans. And oh, then, I thought
1: that one was, was tube. I didn't even know that was solid-state. Interesting.
5: No, sir. Um, and then the TC Electronics pedal Hall of Fame, which is an amazing reverb, but it also has a chorus built in. So you get the chorus from the jazz chorus and then the reverb and the the chorus from the the Hall of Fame pedal, and you get that, that real juicy... Uh, 4C tone that I got.
1: Yeah, when I first heard your song, before I even like listened to the lyrics, and your bass player has a great tone. Like just the whole recording is fucking awesome. But the first thing that caught my ear was like, I'm like, wow, this this guitar tone is insane. And I didn't even think that you're recording live until after like halfway through the song. I'm like, this is fucking being recorded live. Like literally. He's not overdubbing a bunch of shit. It's like being recorded live, so I just I just love that, you know. And I love the guitar tone, and even on Rise, I listen to Rise, and you you have that that same nice. It's I, I can't explain it, but it's a nice, luxurious, deep, in-depth tone, and it's
5: it's great. Well, thank you very much. And I, I think our live recordings sound way better than the stuff we actually took the time in a studio to record. Um, and I think going forward, I'll probably just record stuff live as much as possible. I think. It, it just works better for me
1: yeah and if people could pull it off you know i like to record live but i'm just kind of a stickler on my vocals so i like to i know that it shouldn't matter if i sing off key every now and then because we all do i mean we all fucking do the the, the greats yeah. did you listen to any anybody that's sang prior fucking uh yeah <laughs> exactly yeah been a long day i started i started school this week so i've been like writing papers like all day since i woke up um yeah so autotune you, you know prior Tune, you're gonna you're not gonna hear anybody sing on key 100 of the time and you know that's what i love about stapleton's stuff is that like he sings on key 99.9 percent of the time but every now and then he sounds like a person you listen to old merle hagger it sounds like a fucking person you listen to old johnny cash especially live recordings he sounds like a person and with these autotune stuff, I mean, basically, we're just listening to the robots. It's 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 different. And I, I love the old Black Sabbath albums. I love the shit that they recorded live in basements. And, you know, it's just... We're just missing that humanism. And it's okay if you miss a note here and there. And I need to start being okay with that myself. Because I can play guitar without really messing up whenever I record live. I know some of the best musicians in the United States that will record, that they're not really going to make any bad mistakes, anything that's going to matter, but I need to quit being so harsh on my vocals, and I, I think I'd be able to start recording live again, because I, I do miss it. It is it is a very lost art in my life, and I, I do miss it. I miss the camaraderie, getting everything sounding good in the studio, getting your nice feedback, getting everybody just having that energy.
5: Yeah, and uh, honestly, with when it comes my philosophy with vocals, And just recording music in general kind of stems from years and years and years playing bass in bands and for songwriters that would beat us into submission for the quest of perfection. And I kind of learned that you can't let perfect or you can't let good be the or I can't remember how it goes. You cannot let perfect be the enemy of good. And sometimes. Good enough is good enough. And I and am it takes not away the energy thing.
1: sometimes. Sometimes the energy is better if you have a wrong note.
5: Right, right. And, you know, when you accept your limitations and you kind of swerve into them as opposed to fight them aggressively with technology, good things tend to happen.
1: Yeah, from old Zeppelin to old Skinner to so many old bands that literally recorded live and you just hear these little mistakes here and there. And it's like I could not imagine those songs not having those mistakes in them. Yeah. I think it's great. And some of of my favorite stuff to listen to is old black man blues, man, like the old 30s, like the shit where they're using cat gut guitars and they're out of tune as fuck and they're singing drunk. And, you know, it's just there's something about those recordings that make me feel something sometimes gives me chills. And and off of something, let's like say some auto tune shit that's like on pop fucking country or something like that to where... You know, you got one person in the studio and some really good producer making everything sound perfect. I'm not gonna get those chills. It takes away it takes away all the humanism out of it. And it takes away all the I don't know, it just takes away the magic. And I just love listening to those old fucked up recordings because there's there's just something there that we don't we don't get anymore.
5: Yeah, authenticity.
1: Yeah. And the humanism. Just they, they sound like humans and we as humans we're not fucking robots. Not everything's perfect. And I love that. I I just, I don't know, I love that stuff. Not to mention those guys did live the blues. That's the reason why they wrote the blues, and they sang out of their soul. These days, people go in trying to sing like they're on The Voice. Oh, let me get my vibrato just right. Let me sing in 30 different fucking octaves. Well, you know what? That just doesn't do much for me. I don't care how good you sing technically. I want to hear people sing from their souls. I want... I want them to tell a story, and I want them to make me feel a different way, you know. And yeah,
5: we... I understand that. I think most people get there eventually. It just takes longer for some than others.
1: <laughs> well, some of them don't these days. If they're with the if they're with the record label that's just doing pop country, like say Big Loud Records or some of these other places, they're never going to let anybody record anything that's going to be live. They always want everything just all popped out and they want all their artists out there singing the fucking backup tracks and shit like that. And, you know, you're you're just, you're not going to, no matter what you want to do, if you sign with the wrong label or you're with the wrong group of people, you're never going to achieve that. You're, you're just not. And uh, even Stapleton has a song on his new album called uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And I thought it was going to be pro-Nashville because I know that he lived over there for a long time. And it's not anti-Nashville. It just talks about... Okay, so the chorus goes, so long Nashville, Tennessee, you be you and I'll be me, and he just talks about how you're not who you used to be, and it's time to part ways with that shit, because they never accepted him, first of all, because the way he looked, because he was a little bit overweight, second of all, he got turned down from every place because he wanted to record live, he wanted to do what Waylon Jennings did, he did want to do it the way Hank did it, he wanted to do it the way that it should have been done instead of just with a bunch of fucking electronics and a pretty face, you know? And I think that that's just the way that especially country has, has gone these days. It's more important to look well and to look good and to be 16 years old than it is to actually put out really good music. And I think
5: yeah, pop country is definitely that industry for sure.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think that we're kind of getting away from that. I think, there's, you know, Cody Jinx is a, is a great new artist on, on the rise. And you got you got Chris Stapleton. You you have uh, Virgil Simpson. You, you We have a lot of people that are coming out of the woodwork that are just like, fuck all that glam shit. Fuck all your autotune. Fuck all your, you know, using the same five musicians that are on Eric Church's album and on Jason Aldean's albums. Because it's all the same fucking guitarists, same studio musicians with the same goddamn... F- uh, equipment, in the same fucking studio, that's the reason why you take the vocals out, it sounds like the same song, and it's like, no, we want to use our own amps, we want to use our own bands, and Stapleton was one of the first people, and not to keep beating Stapleton in the ground, but it was just like, he's doing these songs live, he's, he's not really doing very good solos, because he's not like this extraordinary guitar player, he just plays from the heart, he's a good guitar player, don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying, he wants his own tone. He wants his own sound, and it took him 20 fucking years of writing songs for other people to, to where he got to where he could actually do that. And everybody's just like, "Boy, where's the Stapleton guy been?" Well, he's been in Nashville. They just didn't want anything to do with him because he didn't look right and he didn't play their fucking game and suck that dick, you know. And it, and it's, I think we're breaking that mold, and and I, I sure as hell hope that we are because we need more more real artists out there.
5: Yeah, Nashville's been a relatively um, uh trends it's a constantly evolving situation and i've been here since i was 13 i've been playing music and been in the national music scene since i was 16 so going on jesus 22 years now i've been playing around nashville in different ways and it's come a long way um it's a great the, fucking place.
1: I loved playing over there. Trust me. Don't don't get me wrong with what I'm saying that I don't like Nashville. I'm just saying that like uh, it's it's just about the record companies and stuff over there. Everybody just wants to do what's already been done because they don't want to take risks.
5: No, you're absolutely correct. Um, and luckily, there are uh, pockets of uh, humanity still here, um, kind of resisting at all costs.
1: Yeah, and and maybe that will start to come back. And like I said, I th- I think that. You know, there, there's only a few people that have changed the music industry. You know, you have Metallica, Nirvana, Korn, you have Garth Brooks, you have uh, even Keith Urban kind of did it. And now you're having Stapleton say, I'm breaking this cycle. I'm going to get my songs on the radio recorded live with me just on an acoustic guitar. I'm not going to do what you want me to do as raging Against the Machine would say, fuck you, I'm not going to do what you told me. This is, this is my music, and this is the way I'm going to do it. And it took him a long time to get... Because, I mean, honestly, what does it cost now to get a song on FM radio nationally? What is it, about $400,000? It's something
5: like I, that. Yeah, it's, it's comparable to that, I'm sure. I'm, it, sure, it, it's not, oh, I'm sure it's not cheap.
1: No, it's, it's definitely not cheap. So that's that's where you get this 1%. Like we talk about the 1% of money. The 1% goes a lot deeper than that. The 1% also goes with artists too. That's the reason why, okay, you need to have $400,000 to get your your single on the radio every four months, which is a campaign, because that's what it is in the music industry. It's a campaign. To get that $400,000 every three months, you got to be selling out stadiums. If you're not selling out stadiums, then you're not going to be able to pay to have those songs on the radio. Your record label sure as fuck, ain't going to come up with four hundred thousand. dollars keep putting it behind you. So it's like it's like this catch twenty two, and what it leads to is country music radio being ran by Morgan Wallens, by Eric Church's, by, by uh, you know Keith Urban's, by by all this the same fucking five artists, you know, and it's. It's sad because there's so much good music out there. And it should be more about, hey, this song's really good. We should play it. But guess what? You, you can't run an FM station anymore that's ran by Clear Channel or any kind of corporation unless it, it, it's like the Walmart of music. If they're not playing it in New York, they're not going to play it in California. It's going to be all over the place or it's not going to be on there at all. So you only have rich people that are able to get on that platform. Now, the good thing is FM radio is on its way out really fucking fast. It's like, I don't even know if it's really going to be existing in another five or six years, honestly.
5: Uh, you're probably right.
1: I mean, the cars these days, they're all coming with Pandora already in it. They're, they're uh, you know, they're, they're having all the internet stuff. And I do, I always ask everybody, I mean, and I'm going to ask you right now before we get off, and I know we're, we're going over, but I love our conversation. Um, do you listen to FM radio? And if so, how often do you listen
5: to it? I, I don't. Um, I haven't in a very long time. <laughs> I don't either.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, there, there's there, that makes two of us. Now, my girlfriend, she does listen to it. She, it. she she listens to XM more, but she there's a station over here called KJUG, so she gets to hear, like, all the, the new pop country that comes out and stuff like that, and some of the songs she plays for me are actually pretty decent. Lots of good talent out there. I'm not taking away from anybody that uses auto-tune. I'm not taking anything away from Sam Hunt or any of these, these guys that are all pop country. Even Luke Bryan, like, I even said during this episode that that you're on right now that you know i really thought that his docu-series i've only watched three or four episodes of it but i thought it was good and i happen to like luke bryan as a person i i think that he's a fucking really awesome human being does it mean that i like to listen to his songs and and his voice doesn't kind of like eat in my head after a while when i listen to it because it sounds like the same song over and over again no but as far as him and the way that he got there, and things that have happened with his family, and how he grew up and stuff—I—I I, I think he's—I think he's worth watching on on the Netflix series, you know. But uh, she gets to hear all that stuff. But I don't listen to FM, and I, I swear it seems like ninety percent of the people that I, that I talk to don't listen to FM. But yet, it's still only the FM artists that are selling out the the, uh, the the stadiums, and it's still only the FM artists that are actually getting on the CMAs.
5: That's that's true because it's 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 all part of the same cycle. It's, it's the one machine. you just explained. It's it, it feeds itself and it sustains itself, and it doesn't look out for anything outside of itself. And that ecosystem can only last so much longer, considering how most of the revenue streams are drying up.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was nice to see Luke Combs actually uh, win the Male Vocal Artist of the Year, though, because he's, for one thing, he's the first person overweight that I've seen ever win that <laughs> in my life. So I loved that. I thought that was fucking great. Plus, he doesn't have a perfect head of hair. I'm pretty goddamn bald too, so it's kind of it's nice to see that he's like a regular looking Joe, but he's also a great fucking singer, and he deserves it. I I really like Luke uh, Luke Combs a lot. Who's uh who's some of the people out there that that you that that you like? that you would actually like put on your Pandora station, whether they're popular or not? Uh, I would
5: say, well, let's see. Starting with just like national artists. Um, one of my favorite songwriters um, just recently came back to town. A guy named Lance Whalen. Um, fantastic songwriter. Kind of like a, like a dark Nick Cave with an acoustic guitar.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, I know who Nick Cave is. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Lance is fantastic. Uh, Fable Cry a Weird theatrical folk rock, kind of hard to describe. Um, think of a circus with vampires in it playing um, like gypsy rock. They're one of my favorite bands to ever exist. Sergio Simpson, I've been listening to a lot here lately. Yeah, I
1: like uh, him. I like him. He's, yeah, n- he's uh, not just that one Nirvana song that everybody's heard, he's actually got other good stuff too.
5: Yeah, I like his big cover of In Bloom. I think it's its, oh, it's pretty great, good.
1: but I'm just saying that's about the only song that a lot of people have heard.
5: Yeah, um, Adia Victoria is pretty fantastic. Um, she's kind of uh, swerving real hard into like Southern Gothic vibes right now. Um, she's, Southern she's Goth. interesting. Um, going to a festival uh, next weekend called Muddy Roots tons of fantastic music out that way Um, bands like viva la Vox and the goddamn gallows um, oh yeah we had
1: the goddamn gallows here not too long ago at all those guys are fucking great i actually saw them live at a little a little club
5: yeah we did a we did two shows with them last month we did huntsville and nashville with them we're going to be playing with them in savannah um on the 16th i think nice yeah, uh, crazy anybody Anybody's band. never
1: heard of them. They're they, they all look like that they just walked out of prison. They they're covered with tattoos and they they kind of dress weird and they they have some weird kind of music, but it it works. It's good stuff. Yeah.
5: yeah they're interesting and their their fans are, are wild.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, when we had some some wild ones over here, I saw them in Fresno, California. So yeah, the, the they but they uh, played at a place called Fulton 55. Which was actually I was the first person to ever play at that place. I was I was the uh, the opening act for that place when it's when it opened up and that opened up I believe in 2011. I Think they're going on their tenth year now. Wow, yeah, yeah. It holds like six, seven hundred people. So yeah, it's it's kind of a one of the honors that I like to hold because a lot of lot of big bands have came through there like, uh, Marley. Bob Marley's band played there not too long ago, and you know, like I said, it holds six, seven hundred people, and we we get a lot of a lot of good acts in there. Nobody that's going to sell out stadiums, but you know, you charge eighty, ninety dollars a ticket for a decent band and get six hundred people in there, and you can actually pay them. All right, well, go ahead and tell me one more time about rice, because I'm I'm just going to delete the first one <laughs> that we talked about, and we'll go ahead and segue into that right now. It has been a pleasure, Christopher. It this this is. I don't want to put down anybody that I've talked to in the past, but I have to say, this is my favorite discussion so far. You're very knowledgeable in a lot of things, and from serial killers to uh, to music and stuff, it, it, it was a pleasure having you on, and I'm really glad that you sent me your, your music, and I'm really glad that I got to play, and I'm really glad that I got to talk to you and get to know you a little bit.
5: Well, I, I, I agree completely, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to have this conversation, and for you... Uh, Enjoying the music enough to feature it on your program, and uh, yeah, uh, it, it was a good
1: time. Definitely send me more in the future, and uh, I'll always, I will always throw it on there. You know, as long as it, usually I do four or five songs a show, so I should always be able to, send, you know, put on one of your songs in the future as well. Maybe we could put on the uh, first part, Dolores, for the first part of Rise or whatever. So this song is called Rise, everybody. This is. Go ahead and say the name of your band again, so I don't butcher it.
5: Uh, The name of the band is Soviet Shiksa.
1: Yes. So look them up and Shiksa is S-H-I-K-S-A. That's correct. Yes. So look look him up on everything. This is Christopher's song from his band and it is called Rise.